So that's a point I think I have learned over the years is that the very best buildings are ones that somehow intimately reflect the personalities of the individuals and do not cow to fashionable tastes, if you like. Right, yeah. And so for me, the ideal home is not the thing that looks like a Wigmore Street showroom, but which is absolutely speaks of the individual, which is highly autobiographical, which is personal. Hello, my name's Matt Gibbard, and this is the Homing In podcast. For any first-time listeners, uh, a very warm welcome. This podcast is put together by The Modern House, which is the company I co-founded back in 2005. We sell houses and flats, uh, but not just any old thing. There are modernist masterpieces, artist studios, converted industrial buildings and so on. Just the kind of thing that you might find on Grand Designs, in fact. The aim of this podcast is to explore the meaning of home in people's lives. My guest discusses their childhood home, their current place, and an imaginary home of the future, which gives us a glimpse behind the net curtain of their existence. Perched on my amateur psychiatrist couch today is the brilliant TV presenter Kevin McLeod. Kevin's been a fixture on our tellies for so many years now that we feel like we already know him, but actually I didn't have a clue about his life story. Um, so this conversation was really interesting from my perspective. He tells me about growing up in what he refers to as an architectural zoo of housing from different eras. Uh, we talk about his involvement with the Cambridge Footlights, the famous comedy troupe at Cambridge University, where he collaborated with Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson and so on. Uh, he explains why he spent years living in a camper van uh, and also why his future home will definitely have a view of the mountains. Kevin is one of the most engaging and fiercely intelligent guests I've spoken to on this podcast uh, and he's full of all sorts of amusing anecdotes and top tips. Happy listening and I really hope you enjoy it. So it's quite nice, Kevin, to meet someone that's potentially been some more modern houses in this country than I have. Uh, so I'm quite looking forward to this, actually. Unfinished. Unfinished. Yeah, more building sites than I have. <laughs> I think the thing that I really want to concentrate on with you is this idea that design and architecture and giving consideration to your home environment can really add a lot of value to your life. And I know you really believe that. Mm. And I'd love to look at that slightly through the lens of your experience, both personally and professionally, and also on a sort of slightly more macro level as well. But we will start with delving into the past a little bit. So I'd love to know about your experience of home when you were growing up, yeah. a little bit about your family background. So where were you raised? Well, my family are all from Yorkshire on the East Coast, a town called Withensea, which is not noted for its architecture. In fact, the environment agency considers it so unworthy that it's being left to fall into the North Sea. But I grew up near Luton, a place called Toddington. Very fine village it was, where there was a school, and my school occupied three buildings across two sites. And actually they built another building because the village expanded. So I grew up in a, a, a house that my father finished. He bought it as an unfinished project from a, a builder who, who went bust, and it partly self-built, little three-bedroom block of a house, which my father then extended, and a little garden. And, on a corner, on a crossroads, and it was really unusual. I was thinking about this recently, that the house itself was unremarkable. It was 1960s. Mum liked her Bauhaus, Gunter Stolzl-inspired, 60s wallpaper. But the crossroads was interesting because opposite was the playing field of the school. The school was almost next door to the house. It was next to a pair of 1930s semis, beyond which was a row of Victorian terraced houses. Over the road, up the hill, was 1950s semi-detached houses, which were rather of their period, very fine. They were built as 
three-bedroom, you know, it's a little estate, really well made, constructed after the war. Behind us in Chapel Close were these 1940s bungalows, then there were some 20s houses, then there were some 30s houses. And it was a whole agglomerate of this tiny patch of the village was this sort of almost like a little architectural zoo of, of affordable, modest housing over the centuries. And, and for that matter, the schools that I went to also reflected that this was a time when education was still considered worth investing in and comprehensives were being built. So my village primary, which occupied a Victorian and 1930s and a 1960s modernist building, took me then to a grammar school, which was a Victorian Gothic building in Dunstable, which then became this radical 1970s red brick comprehensive, which was a little bit like Reading University on a tiny scale with fantastic facilities. And so the whole, my whole experience growing up probably was, it was modest, but it was quite rich. It, it didn't involve Georgian rectories or modernist villas at all, mm. but it touched on those worlds. And in, in, if anything represented that, the, the more accessible, the more public housing face of housing and, and place building, yeah. place making. Okay. And what was it like inside? What was your bedroom like? Yeah, it's great. I had Thunderbirds wallpaper till I was 14. It was really exciting when I was eight. <laughs> How was it when you were 14? It was less exciting. Yeah. A bit more embarrassing. Yeah. But then I had a funky 70s orange wallpaper with a purple bed throw. And yeah. Yeah. I had the smallest room in the house. So I'm 6'2", and I my bed was 5'10". And as I grew, my father, who was incredibly practical, he was an engineer, a rocket scientist, and he... As you went up the stairs in this little house, there was a triangular, what would you call it? It's like a sort of a, a lump sticking out over the, the ceiling of the staircase, stone sloping staircase. Yeah. And it was where he extended my bedroom. So my bed poked out into the stairwell. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but that was fine. He built that and it was, everything was resolved, but it was the tiniest room, the yeah. box room. But it was the only bedroom I had, so yeah. that was fine. So what, did, did you have enough personal space there, did you feel, looking back on it? Yeah, I think well, I defined personal space because I've been to places in slums in India where the only personal space anybody has is in their head, and yeah. where a, a single space the size of a box room accommodates a family of four, and it's where they sleep and eat and cook, live, and do their homework, and the kids get dressed, and, so, and they manage. And I grew up in a village where, which had seven pubs, so right. personal space was found at school or in the pub or, or in, the, in the Methodist youth club or in the choir. Yeah. There are places, home's how you define it, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it can be your bed, your room, your street, your city, your country. Yeah, or your pub. Yeah. Or your pub, yeah, or your choir. Yeah. yeah. So I think you, you're the oldest, right, of what is it, three, three boys? Three boys, yeah. So, so how would you describe yourself within that sort of hierarchy the, or, or well my younger brothers were both footballers and I wasn't I was hopeless at sport and I was the brainy one so and the geeky ac- one right? geeky academic and the and the artistic one okay. yeah and my dad was a scientist so actually the fact that my middle brother became a plumber and a, a, he took an apprenticeship with a pump company that excited my dad just as much as me going to university and, and so, yeah, we all bonded over engineering. We all bonded over airfix models and scale electric and Hornby railways and the taking something apart and putting it back together again. <laughs> so we shared, a, as, as brothers, we shared a huge amount, of course. Yeah. Different personalities. But actually, weirdly, we all ended up 
doing similar kind of stuff because my youngest brother who's in Australia and has been for 20 years he's he's a builder and my middle brother has a property business lettings and sales and, and builds as well so and develops so we've all ended up in that nefarious market what about your mum then sorry about her yeah mum was mathematically minded a real geek my parents both were mm. very quiet very geeky mm. engineering science based mum did accounts ended up running a social services department but actually I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who said do you not remember when people came round to your house when your parents entertained they would no no I have to stop you there nobody came round to the house <laughs> nobody came to stay we didn't entertain there was a very quiet family was there anything that you look back on now where you could see within yourself that you might be comfortable being in the public eye or making something of yourself in that way was that a drive well I did I studied music and I did a quite a bit of performing both at school and university and I think I I did enjoy a bit of showing off and dressing up <laughs> as a kid and I and and partly that comes from a desire to escape a sort of need to put on a, a, an act to hide the self to to fit in because I was unusual in as much as I was not a footballing snotty kid I was a bit more geeky were you, were you very tall at that age as well? Yeah, I was fairly tall as a kid, yeah. Yeah, gangly. Gangly. Yeah. So what was school like for you? Did you did you not fit in? Did you get teased? Or? Yeah, all of that. That's the quid pro quo of being academic. You get bullied and you get teased and you get prodded. But th- th- all of that you take in your stride and as you go through life, you discover those individuals like you who fit, because there are plenty of them, who fit the same mould. It sounds like maybe there's a, there's a small part of you that I'll show them about it oh no no not at all i think it's more no there's no no sense of revenge yeah (laughs) who would go into television with with a desire for revenge what exactly are you proving (laughs) Um, that you could become a better piece of telly fluff than somebody else yeah no i think it, it no certainly with other kids it was just about going through life and trying to find the soulmates because they're going to be fewer of them um and I think also that the, the I mean, it might be fanciful to suggest that if you're on the edge, if you're on the margin, then you appreciate other people who are too. Yeah. And I think going to the margins of society, the edges, the places where people are, are experimenting more is more interesting. And, and it, yeah, it takes you somewhere. Yeah. So it took you a little while, didn't it, to find your groove sort of academically after you left school? Because I think you, very you, you went to Florence, didn't you, first of all, is that right? To, <laughs> yeah, to got, study singing? You've, you've done your research. Yeah. So, yeah, I got a place to study languages at Cambridge, which my parents were very excited about. And the Cambridge said, well, you speak French and you've done your A-level and so on. So I said, yeah, so, but we need another language. So go to Italy. So I went to Italy, worked in a pub over a summer and went there for about a year and a half and, and stayed with the family and worked on a farm. And it truly was, that year on the farm was the happiest of my life. It was the most formative experience working in an organic vineyard. Why was uh, it? It was formative because I fell in love, because I fell in love with the place, the language, the culture. I'd grown up in this rather, we travelled as a family. We'd taken the car around Austria and Germany and French coast and stuff but we never as a family stayed anywhere and immersed ourselves and this was the 60s anyway when that kind of international travel just didn't really happen Spain was still <laughs> under the rule of Franco mm. so yeah to go to a country and to find that not only was it fascinating visually artistically 
but the culturally in the everyday, the language, the personality of, of Italians is, and the way in which can life is the, the tenor, the timbre of emotional relationships and the connection to place and connection to life and to family, that these things are very different when you spend time in a place which, and so I became fascinated with Italy. I mean, it was a kind of such an unusual and different place. And um, so, uh, and I got a place while I was there, the mother and the family I was staying with, she knew someone at the conservatory, she said, look, because I sang, played the piano, they had a piano. And she said, you should go and audition. So I went and auditioned and weirdly got a place at the conservatory and studied there for a year. And then they offered me another place. Then my kind of singing teacher from the UK took a detour from his holiday and wrote to me and then came to see me and said, no, you've got to go to Cambridge, you can't. And my father wrote me, I think the only letter he wrote to me in my entire life, saying, you've got to come back and go to Cambridge. So I did. And I and everybody said, oh, you can go back and do the singing afterwards. And actually in, in Florence, they said, yeah, you can come back, but I never did. Do Which rather re- rather vindicated everybody else, didn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, did, did, you must have been a good singer. Do you, do you regret any of that? No, I've got. I sang at university a bit, and I've got plenty of friends who are professional singers, uh, and plenty. Of, I know a few, and they're all. Some of them are very successful, and I wouldn't swap my life for theirs. I think it's a very mm. peripatetic and very. It's kind of it's bad enough me being away two or three days a week for work but to be away all the time on a sort of international tours is just it's just travel mm. yeah. okay so you got a place to do to study languages and then you didn't so what happened there yes <laughs> oh god this interview's gonna be over before so i did languages then then philosophy and then i changed again i did a two-year architectural history art history part two and <laughs> at that time i decided i wanted to be a theater designer so i i was all about trying to get out of the place and leave and and you were, you were part of the famous Cambridge Footlights. Well, trip, I, I wasn't ever in Footlights. No, I, did, I was a designer. So I was designing sets and costumes well, and posters and stuff. Yeah. There was this hilarious show that went to the Edinburgh Fringe that launched sort of Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie's career. And for that matter, Emma Thompson and Tony Slattery and Paul Shearer. And they were all in this show, directed by Jan Ravens. And you'd done the set for it. Yeah, and I went and just went up. I was dating Jan at the time. So I went up and operated the follow spot for her. Okay. For the show. It's not exactly the high point. People say to me, oh, you, you were in, in there with all of these. No, I wasn't. I was operating the bloody follow spot. I was a technician. <laughs> so at that time, obviously, that's an extremely talented group of people. Did you have any sense yeah. that something was happening there? I'd only said, I had a complete sense that they were going to make it and that I was not. That's, that's <laughs> the sense I had. Yeah. Oh dear. yeah, fair enough. Okay, well, let's move on to the, the present day. Thank goodness. I know, exactly, yeah. Big sigh of relief. Well, actually, before we do that, there is one thing that maybe people don't always know, which is you had a lighting company called McLeod Lighting. I did, yeah. So how did that come about from doing set design? Oh, yeah, well, sorry. I mean, you're just making me retrace what now appears to be an entirely itinerant (laughs) and unfocused career with no sense of direction (laughs) and a complete dilettante attitude, which sums up my life. You said it, yeah. I'm ideally qualified for the job I do. That's all I will say. Yeah, right, okay, yeah. And I've been doing the same job now for 25 years. There was a time in the 80s when you could design and make something and stick it in the window of Joseph on the Fulham Road and people go, oh, God, I have that. And so I work for kind of all kinds of crazy decorators and designers and architects. And so I ended up doing a ceiling for Harrods for the fruit hall and 
that was basically loads of flying fruit and veg on the ceiling and and it all sounds a bit mad looking back but this was at a time when Jigsaw were commissioning Nigel Coates to do amazing copper facades to their shops and there was a sense finally that we were moving out of this grey period into something adventurous and futuristic and so there was an opportunity to design and make things and I did quite a lot of that and I ended up doing some metal work and and actually yeah just drifted into making furniture and lighting and and that was came out of that that but by that time I'd slightly given up on the theatre as much as the standard equity rate for designing set for set and costumes in the 80s was 500 pounds it wasn't you weren't going to make you weren't going to make a living just designing costumes and sets so I had to diversify which is really how that business came about and it moved into the lighting because that was the stuff which people I found it people didn't understand actually so we could design interesting fixtures with uplighters and downlighters and twinkly bits and and that was it was a great time what advice would you have to people about artificial lighting in general like do you think that there's a couple of things that you, a couple of rules that you should think about yeah I think you can get very tricksy yeah, right. And LED. I'm looking over at an LED strip. I can now see. <laughs> I can actually see the strip because I'm sitting down and I can look into the hallway and there it is underneath the handrail on the stairwell. Lighting the stairwell very nicely, but from here I can see the strip. Right. So what I do not like is seeing the fix, seeing the fitting, seeing the, the yeah, light source. And yeah. there's a real fashion at the moment for dangly light bulbs mm. with a filament showing, mm. albeit an LED filament. And this, was, this breaks a cardinal rule for me because what it does is create glare in the eyes, which means you can't, you, you just shut your eyes, all you see is a negative image of the filament and you can't see anything else in the room. Mm. Yeah, you can get me going on this, but it's, that's another podcast. You did another podcast just about light. domestic lighting. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Maybe for another time. Another time. No, I agree though. I think like, well, there's a brilliant book about this called In Praise of Shadows. Yes. Have you read that? It's, I have. It's such a great book. And it's beautiful. It's quite poetically written. It's, yeah. Yeah. Who's the author? Uh, Junichiro Tanazaki. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all about the, it takes that Corbusian idea that, you know, play of light. Yeah. Uh, and that shadow provides the definition. And if mm. you swamp a building with yeah. light, if you put hidden lighting everywhere, what you kill shadow. And in doing that, you destroy the mystery and the beauty of the place. Glenn Merkert in Australia mm. is famous for this. And he's probably one of the top, I don't know, five, ten architects in the world, I think. And treads this beautiful line between, and this, you see this in Japanese architecture, between the finite and enclosure and the infinite space mm. that is beyond, and the way in which the enclosure forms a compartmentalization of the wider universal space we all share in, in, into the domestic, and then does so in a translucent way and in a broken way. And uh, I think that's a very, it's a very hard part, path to tread, and it's not one that's very easy to do, particularly in our climate, but mm. it's really interesting when you come across it. Another book here, David Batchelor, the artist, wrote one called uh, Chromophobia, which deals with the way in which people enjoy living in white-painted art gallery spaces with nothing in them. And, and, it's, and he says, look, we have this fear of colour and historically rooted. But he talks about the excoriating nature of white space, right. the fact that it's cleansing and it is antiseptic. Mm. And it is, it, it's everything that 1920s modernists wanted. Mm. So what's your, what are your views on colour then? Oh, no, I bring it on. I've written a couple of books about that. Yeah. Silly ones, but yeah. What I, well, what I was interested to, and I'm sure you'll know all about this, I was, the way that you perceive colour changes through your life. But you were also talking actually before we started about how 
when you get older as well, you perceive light differently and you need more light as well. Yeah. And of course, generally, most people, as they get older, develop some form of cataract in their eyes. So, yeah, there are all kinds of physical infirmities and vagaries that we have to deal with. And yeah, what the, besides it, then there's the kind of slightly less physical aspect of taste, you know, yeah. which is that our tastes change and they're all different from each other. I wouldn't wear those trainers, you wouldn't wear mine. But that's yeah. the point is probably in five years time I would. Yeah. So I'm very aware that in, in, in being in a position where you're writing or you're promoting or you're selling or you are broadcasting, to simply sound off and flout your taste is a dangerous thing because you mm. might find yourself contradicting yourself in five years' time. And mm. for that matter, it, it just seems to me to just alienate most of your audience. So mm. maybe that, that's a separate conversation about what is design as opposed mm. to what is taste. Just leaving the podcast very briefly to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Vitsu. The Homing In podcast is obviously all about exploring people's life stories. And what's amazing about Vitsu's 606 universal shelving system is that people carry it with them throughout their lives. It's literally a physical backdrop to their past, their present and their future. They might inherit some Vitsu shelving from their parents, for example, and then take it with them when they move. The joy of Vitsu shelving is that it becomes a receptacle for the things that matter most in our lives. So our favourite books, photos, found objects, kids' paintings and so on. You wouldn't have thought it's possible to form an emotional attachment to some shelving, uh, but that's exactly what happens. In my experience, it's the one thing that people refuse to part with when they sell their home. To find out more about it, visit vitsu.com. That's V-I-T-S-O-E.com. Right, back to the podcast. So where do you live now? What's your home of the present? Currently a building site. A building site? Yeah, with rooms. Okay. <laughs> so you know, you, like you go to a restaurant with rooms. Yeah. I, 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 I've lived in a series of works in progress. Yeah. And that's all I'll say about it. I'm always very coy about describing the house I live in, only because I know that reputationally it, it could be enormously damaging yeah. for people to realise that I'm as vulnerable as anybody else and yeah. as chaotic as anybody else and yeah. uh, and I'd like to say that I live in an excoriating white box but I mm. do not and mm. and but it is a work in progress are you, are you building something from scratch or are you no re- well I'm remodeling something but yeah. you know when so when somebody says to me oh have you ever built I said you know, the thing is it's not a case of have ever it's going to be mm. am I currently mm. in a phase of building and the answer is often yes so i I think that's a hangover from being a maker, actually, is the idea of wanting to all the time experiment with space and make it and play with it. And, uh, and I leave it to others, people with more money and who, who can afford the finished thing and who can build the finished thing to experience that. But, but it's certainly not what I advise. I don't advise people to build because I think it's a very, it can be quite a destructive process. And, very, and the trick is, if you're building a house, is to get it over with so you can live in it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that, of course, like anybody else. Yeah. You said that you've been travelling around in a caravan or <laughs> equivalent. Yeah, so this is a kind of COVID-enforced... So, and I had this camper van, which I would drive around the country, and, and which sounds idyllic for people thinking, well, I can holiday in the UK. Yeah, sure, but doing it for work in February is mm. less glamorous. And it was... I felt at the time, I felt it was quite healthy, getting back to basics. Just filming people in muddy fields, and I was experiencing life alongside them. They were going to bed in the caravan. I would be sleeping in my camper. So. What did you did you like it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I've only recently gone back to hotels. So it's been, it was two years wow. of it and three nights a week or something, four nights a week. Mm. And it's great in the summer. 
mm. and miserable in the winter. Yeah. But actually really quite salutary and quite bizarrely, I became somewhat habituated. I became a little bit dependent on it. I didn't want to let it go. So as someone that's had a lot of your own building projects and of course witnessed so many others as well, what do you think is a kind of simple economic way for people to make their homes better? Have you, have you got any thoughts on that? And when I say better, I don't mean on a taste level, I just mean obviously on, a, on the way that it performs or the way that it helps support you. Yeah, well, that's a big question. In a way, I think that the success of that television series I do has really sprung from the fact that human beings are so different and consequently our spaces are so different. And I'm very aware that if an architect is going to deal with a client, then actually the response is always going to be so very particular to that family, that household, that individual or, or that place. So there are some general points, aren't there? I think we can all of us be a little bit more aware of ourselves. So that's a point I think I have learned over the years is that the very best buildings are ones that somehow intimately reflect the personalities of the individuals and do not cow to fashionable tastes, if you like. Right, yeah. And so for me, the ideal home is not the thing that looks like a Wigmore Street showroom, but which is absolutely speaks of the individual, which is mm. highly autobiographical, which is personal. And so, funnily enough, last week, it's the very last episode of Grand Designs 2022, and in that episode, I revisit a project that we first went to in 1997. Oh, wow. One of the couple said to me, that she remembers saying when we first met, because she did quite a lot of meditation with a crystal healing friend of hers, who asked her to focus and draw images of the things that made her happy. And, I, and at the time, I thought, oh, yeah. But I've come to realise that's what we should all be doing with our homes. We should all be trying to imagine the things that really make us happy. Now, if that happens to be Italian wine or a view of the sunset or playing with your children or tinkering with old cars, fine. Whatever it is, just design your building around that. Make, make, the, make your home around that. Make, make it work in that way. And, and so prescribing for people is a dangerous thing. Mm. What you should do is actually think about what makes you happy, mm. I think. Yes, exactly right. So I want to ask you specifically about Grand Designs now. It's obviously had a massive cultural impact. How would you assess the sort of nation's thirst and knowledge for modern design and architecture and the importance of their homes now compared to, what was it, 1997? I find it very hard to draw conclusions. And if you said to me, oh, yeah, Bauhaus versus post-First World War, I could write you an essay about that with a conclusion but maybe not but the point being is that you get that historical perspective and it's i spent half spent a huge amount of time driving in my car and my van now thinking dude what does that mean yeah <laughs> i can point to the fashionable ideas that have come and gone but in a way you think oh hang on a minute if i remember I, my, my mouth they'll be back yeah and and so matt i'm speaking honestly here because i can't I, I find it quite hard to, i mean i look back at series one of grand designs for example and we had an oak-framed house designed by Rod James, a very nice building, and people are still building those. And I look back at what Sarah Wigglesworth and Jeremy Till did in North London, and they built this extraordinary house with a library tower. It was kind of a slightly postmodern, but it was... Yeah, using, was, using straw bales. Straw and bales, and also backs filled with concrete. It was yeah. a kind of improvisational quality. It looked quite Italian. It was so exciting and unusual and eclectic. And... I'm hard pushed to find projects as exciting as that that we've come across in 25 years. So, okay. And every, it seems every five years, somebody does another Miesian pavilion. For sure. 
Every five minutes. Every, yeah. every five minutes they film. Every, yeah. five, every five years we film one because I've just about recovered from the last one. <laughs> I have to tell you, I once went for a, rec- a fairly standard procedure, but it involved uh, pumping my uh, digestive tract full of carbon dioxide and uh, doing a scan. And this involves some intervention. And I went in and the, the x-ray guy running the big machine uh, said, it won't be me doing it today, it's the consultant. I said, really? That's unusual. Do they normally do this procedure? No, but he wants to come and see you. So this guy came and he, just before he inserted the tube, said, by the way, you said recently on television that you hate glass boxes. You've had enough of them. They're done. She said, my wife and I have just built one. And she heard you say that and she burst into tears. And then he inserted the tube. And I did for a while think about trying to take him to the General Medical Council because I thought that was a little unfair. But yeah. anyway, I have never told anybody that story. But the point is that... <laughs> you should tell more people. <laughs> that story. So and now I refuse to film Glass Boxes because I'm worried this is going to happen again. Yeah, but there's a serious point in there, actually, isn't there? Which is that you're saying we, we shouldn't all do a sort of pastiche of what's already been done. I personally believe it's really important that we build things that reflect our own feelings at the time and that it's there's always a groundswell in the aesthetic movement at any moment and mm. we probably need to try and tap into that. John Leyland, who was a 16th century Elizabethan English traveller, I think used the frame in time of mind. We're building in time of mind. Yeah. And what a lovely phrase that is because it suggests that somehow it a building should reflect our minds mm. but also our time. Exactly. And and that there should be a sort of conscious and coherent and it's an expression of integrity, isn't it? To say, mm. I'm confident enough to be able to do something that is me, but also of, of here and now. Mm. And that's the gloriousness of architecture as opposed to automotive design, for example, is that it's fixed, it's rooted in a place, it has to be part of a place as well as an expression. I was having a conversation earlier on today with one of your, one of your colleagues about chairs, about the fact that every apparently every house in London now has Hans Wegner chairs, except they're not Hans Wegner. They're called Hans or Wegner, but they're from some workshop in China and sell to any number of retailers. And there's a sort of tremendous comfort that we also come to, doesn't matter who we are, of joining a club, that we, we've arrived, we've got that thing, we've acquired that object, and we've made mm. that physical statement mm. in our home, in our world, that we control mm. our environment. Well, as you were talking about that, though, I was thinking, must be nearly 20 years ago, my wife Faye and I bought ourselves an original Eames rocking chair. It's a beautiful one, grey, you can see the fibres in it. That's it. Stunning. But as soon as everyone else had one, we just hated it and we, we sold it. We couldn't bear to live with it anymore. And that's the problem, I think, isn't it? It's because we're so bombarded with images of these iconic shapes of things Yeah. that it, it looks like everyone else's place then. Yeah. And it's very hard to make it not look like everybody else's place. But I think it's important. But the moment you do, you, you, there's a sort of way in which you're being contrary, isn't there? You can't escape the cultural conformity. Because by the, by making the contrarian statement, you're it's a knowing reference. Quite, it's impossible to not be knowing, isn't it? I think you said it earlier. Actually, the most important thing is clearly to surround yourself with things that have personal meaning. Ideally, things that you have traded with other people that are important to you in your life, in a way, don't you think? Well, here I think you hit you very cleverly hit on a, I think a really quite important idea, and that we've talked about the chairs as bearing the names of the designer without understanding who made them. And and I'm very aware that you can spend 30 quid on a plate and you can choose to spend it on 
a plate that's made in Portugal by a small company or a plate that's made in China but wears the name of a posh UK brand that used to be a pottery where they used to make things. Or you can buy it from a local ceramicist down the road who probably sell you that plate for the same price that you can buy a plate in John Lewis for. So I, it's a topsy-turvy world of value. I've got a vase at home, which I've, and I, in the bottom of the vase is a piece of paper and I kept the piece of paper because it's got the maker's name on it, the glass blower. And, and I kept it because I thought, if I don't keep the piece of paper, I'll forget who made it. Now I didn't meet this person. I actually bought that thing in a gallery, but I've got one or two other pots and bits and bobs made by friends, some of them, and some made by makers who I've met, where I don't expect anybody else to value that pot because the relationship I had with the friend who made it or the person who I met who made it is very personal to me. And all I can tell you is that the emotion and the, the energy, the human energy that went into the pot is the same energy that goes into building a house. And the more of that there is, the more of that will be transmitted. And it, mm. Charles Moore, this is a quote I tire myself from repeating, but it's so good. He, he was an American architecture critic and architect, nutcase man. But he said that all good buildings should have the capacity for absorbing human energy and then repaying it over time with interest. The idea that you, the maker puts this energy into the making of the object mm. and that it's there forever. For, all of us to tap into. Mm. And the more you know that person, the more you know about them, the stronger that energy is. Mm. So that the the cycle, when I had my lighting business, we used to get people, like designers and architects and clients, and it would always excite the guys working in the fabricators that had a little forge. Norman ran the forge. And he used to get very emotional about the fact that people would close the loop, that he would spend three or five months making an object. This is the man in his 60s, so this is approaching retirement, yeah? That each object he made was a chunk of his life, so valuable in terms of the time allotted to him and remaining. And then it would leave the forge and that would be it. It got to be on to the next thing. If somebody came back and said, thank you, it would be a huge moment for him, but also for them, because they would be meeting the person that had made that object. And here, I think we move from this treadmill world of brand and object and value and conformity and names and exploitation and manufacturing in the Far East. And we move into a different world where actually for very little more money, mm. you can enjoy a relationship with this, these people and this magical process of making things. Mm. And the glorious thing is that the only thing pretty well that we still make in the UK is our houses. Mm. So if you commission a building or you get the builders in to do your loft extension, or you buy a table from a maker, or you go to an exhibition and find a somebody making carpet or placemats and you buy six of them for five quid or whatever. You, doesn't matter what level you're spending, you engage with these individuals and you experience something quite magical actually compared to the process of buying and consuming brand. And you become a patron, not just a paying customer. Well, yeah, some people that we've sold houses to, they refer to themselves as custodians, which is interesting, I think. In fact, I did a podcast with um, Tom Broughton, who's the founder of Qubits, the Spectacles brand. Yes. And he bought a flat from us and it's grade two star listed and he has to use the pre-existing holes to put his picture hooks or nails in to be able to hang up a picture. Yeah, it's quite extreme, isn't it? Yeah, that is very extreme. Yeah. The conservation officer coming around and telling you what colour to paint your fireplace. Exactly. Yeah. But he loves it. There's a real thrill for him in the fact yeah. that 
Yeah, there might have been a, a Ben Nicholson hanging on there at some point originally. Yeah. Know? So he, he buys into that. But it's, yeah, it's interesting, this idea that's, of custodianship. That's, that's a really interesting point. Something we haven't touched on is the idea that you move in, because many people buy a listed house, and the first thing you do is knock it apart. You know, yeah. <laughs> you can remove all the stuff that they fell in love with, yeah. all those thousands of tiny details, yeah. and then sell it eight years later, which in the terms of the house's history might represent 3% of its entire yeah. life. Yeah. So... I think that idea of reaching back and using the building as a means of... It's again, it's about reaching for authenticity, isn't mm. it? Getting ask, beyond... Ask the, ask the building what it wants to be. Yeah, exactly. And trying to respect its narrative, the story it tells you, is mm. quite a... It's, it's a hard thing to get right. Yeah. Hard thing to get right because you you can bodlerize it, just mm. basically rip out, remodel, fake its history almost, yeah. Mm. Or, or you can try and add a gentle chapter at the end without altering the previous narrative. Yeah, yes, exactly. Let's move on to the future. Yeah. So my business partner, Albert, right, a bit like me, he's seen a lot of houses over the years, and he would go around with a little black book and he would note down features that he particularly thought were engaging or interesting in some way. And the idea was that at some stage, these might come together to form a triumphant Casa Albert and he realised in the end that that wouldn't work at all. It'd be like a Frankenstein's monster of a thing. But I did wonder, have you ever done something similar and, you know, seen things as you've gone along and thought, oh, I might want to incorporate those into my house of the future? Like Albert, I started that way. Did you? Making notes, taking photographs. And I still yeah. take photographs of buildings, a lot. But they, I take the photograph in order to be able to remember the moment as much as anything else and the experience. And so now, no. I appreciate that other people, I get to stay in other people's, spend a day or two or whatever, a few mm. days with other people. And filming House of the Year is amazing because you get look at some mm. amazing, wonderful new buildings. But I come away nearly always with impressions and ideas and enthusiasms. I tend to feed off the energy of the place yeah. more than I do the details. And, and I've come to realise, like Albert, that what matters is things that matter to me, not... Mm. to other people. So in that case, if you were to draw a picture of your kind of ideal place to live... What hard, would it... hard to draw a picture because I don't know what it looks like. Yeah, so um, what would it have? It would have a number of things that I do think are important. So it would have books, it would have a very comfortable sofa. I have a comfortable sofa, I've got that far. It would have a place to work, it would have music, it would have wine, maybe even somewhere to grow grapes to make wine, and it would have mm. a view of the sunset and it would have a stoop yeah. On which to sit and enjoy yeah. the sunset, drinking wine, mm. learning to play the guitar, or something like that. Why the sunset? Oh, I just, I, I think very personal. I just, all my life I've just been mesmerised by them, by the colours, by the change, the light, the fireworks show, and it's free. And how many sunsets do you get to see in your life? Mm. Doesn't matter. Can't be enough. Can't be enough of them. Yeah. Can't be too many of them. And how much space would it have? How much space is enough for you? Oh, I don't know. I don't need much. Don't need... Do any of us need much? We probably don't. That's kind of why I ask you. I mean, and, and would you see it having one big open space? Would you see it being quite cellular? What do you think on that front? I think the way that we live relatively informally these days needs kind of semi-open plan or broken plan. Mm. I like cellular bedrooms. I like doors. I like privacy. Yeah. But I equally enjoy the sense of connection to space so it's as much knowing that there's something beyond the journey the route through the narrative of a building or a place and actually out through into the world beyond so i've always been a fan of skylights because they just give you this view to infinity even in the middle of a city you can see the stars and the heavens 
from the clouds and the moon. I mean, how romantic to be able mm. to see the universe, as it were, from your sofa or your bed and or your shower. And I've always enjoyed showering outside. Mm. I like being outdoors. I work outdoors. So to, to have a house that didn't give me the maximum connection to the outdoors, I think would be, that would be limiting for me. Yeah. But it's, you know, I'm very aware these are hugely kind of personal That's, likes and dislikes. Aren't yeah, they? of course. You know? What sort of landscape is your favourite? Oh, mountains. Mountains. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, hills and mountains. I'm, I didn't grow up anywhere with mountains, but I've spent some time in, in them and like them. So would this potentially be at altitude? Could be, but I have a view of the Malvern Hills in one way and the Welsh Mountains the other, and I think that's good too. So it's yeah. just, a, a, just a, the comforting connection, visual connection is helpful. Do you prefer city or country generally? I'm not very good at cities. Why not? I never grew up in one and never enjoyed it. And I couldn't necessarily easily find the romance of, of not that I'm an astrology fan, but I'm a Taurian bovine pull in, pull in a china shop yeah well bovine element of yeah. animal of the earth yeah so yeah that, that, that the the idea of contact is quite important and so do you feel that sort of idea of getting very hands-on with the earth and with the land around you is, is that really important to you hugely every day really can't number of things every day you have to do i have to do one of them is make contact with the soil and really? whether that's digging or handling or planting or just planting my feet on mm. it and yeah the energy of the natural world isn't I don't see this as a romantic alternative I see it as essentially part of life it's about taking a place in a natural order of things as an animal which is what we are yeah and also the I, I find the idea of forming outdoor spaces as powerful as forming indoor ones that, mm. that you are you're ordering shaping the world in in your imagination to in in your image to an extent and it's rather grandiose grandiose word decoration but how would how would you see your house being decorated what would you see in terms of kind of color or the things around you or the things that you're living with yeah i think of course very few of us live in isolation so the choices of how we furnish and decorate our homes are made usually in in collaboration with somebody and it's nice when it's collaborative not competitive mm. in the venn diagram of taste and choice it's great when there's an overlap mm. because otherwise you end up finishing your house using a sort of, sort of like a law of diminishing returns, really. It's what you both least hate, which is miserable, really. So I think the idea of being able to explore taste is a, it's a bit of a journey and you see stuff. And it's, again, highly personal, but I think I'm, I have a fondness for mid-century furniture, but mm. not, I'm not a vintage freak at all. I just... Mm enjoy the not, there's an odd bit of 1950s furniture I like and I think that post-war design in Europe I think was a very interesting time and a time when we were exploring ergonomics as much as we were form and design and and that that's satisfying and I'm certainly not a fan of frills mm. <laughs> but plenty of people I know and love are so and I enjoy their exploration of that I mean, th th that's the thing I this is not you don't go to war over the fact your neighbour's got a BMW while you prefer an Audi. Mm. You don't go to war over these issues. You simply accept that there's that there's a fantastic capacity for diversity among human beings. Mm. And my job is to record that yeah. and to try and therefore enter into other people's minds and admire their position, try and understand their position. Mm. And so I'm very aware that uh, I mean, I'm not a... I don't make a good decorator 
I don't make a good home furnisher mm. because I am never quite sure about what I'm going to do next or what I what's going to hit me or what I like. So it's not a it's not a way to do it, is it? Let's do the white kitchen. Oh, this is going to be a fifties room. No, it's like <laughs> I can't do that. I can't apply myself with confidence because I'm too interested in too many things. Yeah, I get that. Is there a, a pre-existing house anywhere that you would love to live in? Oh, no. You can choose yeah. any. Glen Merkert, you, you mentioned earlier. Anything? No, no, because it's Glen Merkert's house. Yeah. The house he designed in Victoria for clients, his very first building, which he then later bought from them and then extended. Yeah. And that That's Glen's house. That's his house he designed yeah. for them, but also for him. So I... I find it quite easy to say that. I don't mm. get jealous about, but I often find myself saying to people, oh, I could live here. But, mm. I, no. Yeah. So, so I, it, it's come back to the particular, doesn't it? And the way in which buildings are such a response to place and such a response to people. Yeah. So it happens that we've got your daughter, Grace, here today. The brilliant Grace, who's, Hi, Grace. Who, who works with us, and I'm going to say it, I'm going to make her blush, but she is amazing, and she's such a talented writer and editor. And I think so, too. She's fantastic. So I'm going to ask her to ask you a question, because I'm intrigued about what she's going to ask you. So what do you think, Grace? Great. So, Dad, my question to you, and I think you may say that you can't answer it, but let's give it a crack, is it seems to me, you were talking about in the 90s when there was this kind of post grey period where there was a kind of explosion and people like Jigsaw were putting copper on yeah, the front of their yeah. houses of, the, of their shops and you were designing lights in the shape of fleur-de-lis in rusty metal and Montgolfier balloons and it was all quite extra for want of a yeah, very modernist <laughs> no and my question and you say that you don't live in a white box but you live in more of a white box now than you ever have yeah do you think you've become more of a modernist or a minimalist as you've got older. Yeah, you see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take issue with you about the, the kind of the lifestyle <laughs> thing because I, I, I don't think of myself as being minimalist at all now. I've got too much stuff and I, and if anything, I'm veering more, okay, maybe more to the 20th century. But okay, that's the first thing to say. The second thing is that 80s, 90s period of excess. I, I worked in the theatre, so in fact, that kind of the, theatricality of that period suited me and suited the work I was doing. The third thing I'm going to say is that actually our homes, where we lived, you growing up, most of the stuff hanging from the ceiling and on the walls was prototype stuff. So it was all the stuff that came out the back end of the business, which wasn't quite fully finished or wasn't. So the product we were doing was some, actually was quite there. We did quite a lot of contemporary craft stuff as well. In fact, there was a very well-selling porcelain lamp with a beaten tail of a it was quite a, a modern piece of sculpture and it was called the gracie like it was named after you and so i just that, that point we were talking about earlier which is that you look back over your own life and it's quite hard to see there was no kind of blinding light there was no kind of transformative moment where i thought this is the true path forward at all it was more exploratory and exploring ideas and seeing what worked and i don't think of i don't even think of le corbusier's home and you and i went to a corbusier house in stuttgart together a couple of years ago a few years ago and i didn't find that building contradictory in any way to visiting a, a french chateau mm. in a way they're all of their time and they're all essays they're all attempts to explore space and to find 
a meaning in a built thing. And sometimes that is, and very often that is romantic. It's a, there's a romantic experience. And I even found Corbusier's building with that rooftop, just a little paddling pool in his gym and his exercise areas on the roof for sunbathing. And I find that romantic. You look at the stuff, and as is often the case, you look at a modernist building versus a photograph of a, a boudoir in the Rococo style, and you think these are worlds apart, but they are not. They're all built by humans for humans, and they are all explorations. And I think that's, so I, you know, is that an answer? The fact that actually it is, it, what I'm trying to do is pretend that there's some kind of sense in my life, linking all of these ideas together. I think that's what you've been getting at the whole way through, though, that actually it's about, like you were saying, it's about exploration. It's about maybe you'll never know. It's just what you're doing and making each of your building projects is trying to work it out. Yeah, I don't think Bernini, uh, I don't think Palladio, I don't think that William Morris, I don't think they embarked on projects fully understanding what they were doing. And I don't think Corbusier did. He pretended. And Corbusier, in fact, like Picasso, went back over his life's work and burnt a huge amount of it and rewrote his notebooks in order to make a coherent story. Palladio did the same thing. Palladio published books about his buildings and the buildings do not resemble the drawings. The drawings are highly elaborate and they're fictitious, idealized versions of the building. So I think throughout architecture and design, I think designers and architects have had the ability to draw and therefore have used that skill as a means of rewriting their own histories and making sense of their own lives in an attempt to try and say to the rest of the world, it's okay, guys, I got this taped. You just follow me. Unfortunately, your archives and the Channel 4 video tape. Well, that's my archives oh, okay. making its way to Alpha Centauri currently. Is <laughs> What a terrible legacy. It's electromagnetic radiation. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Kevin and thank you all very much for listening. If you're enjoying Homing In, it will be much appreciated if you could spare a moment to leave us a quick review. It makes a huge difference because it helps other people to find the show. A reminder as well to please tap follow on your screen so that you're alerted about new episodes as they get released. Uh, we've got some incredible guests coming up including a legend of the design world, uh, a comedian, a chef, uh, and all sorts of amazing entrepreneurs as well. As always, do take a look at the Modern House website and we'll post up some photographs on there. You can follow the link in the show notes or visit themodernhouse.com. This episode was produced by Hannah Phillips and edited by Oscar Crawford with music by Father. Thank you again for being here and talk to you all next time. Bye for now.